0: Everybody and welcome back to Thinking Theologically, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Tired. I'm I'm assuming you're tired too. So that makes I'm also tired. So nobody This episode almost didn't happen.
1: N- nobody judge us for the content <laughs> and clarity of this episode, even though this is one I've been looking forward to. To doing for a long time but um give us a little grace that's a biblical concept if you didn't know uh so
0: i think we've talked about it in fact so give
1: us a little grace
0: yeah we're we've been building up to this and we're both really tired when recording it so it could be like could be like the uh the movie series builds and builds and builds or some book series just builds and builds and you hope that are they going to deliver on all these plot lines are they going to tie everything up in a nice neat little bow maybe maybe Uh, not or is it just a cash grab
1: we're we're keeping Uh, it's definitely
0: definitely we're going to keep
1: everybody in suspense i think you 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 know the, the reason i'm tired for anybody that's listening that may be considering or in the process of going into ministry You've probably heard this before. It's true that school only kind of prepares you for ministry. Yes. I, I think that's true with every Very job, true. right? School kind of prepares you for yeah. the real world, um, but not really. Um, yes, yeah, school. I-, I didn't learn in school uh, that you needed to be a electrician and carpenter uh, to do ministry, but that's what I've been doing. The past two
0: days um
1: is you should so on the carpentry if, thing because if anybody Jesus. needs an electrician uh you paul had tent making i have uh electricity apparently uh so
0: it's now my you're not an outlier job. either man i've also done that <laughs> it's just a normal <laughs> it's just ministry stuff but we did not have a class on it so maybe we'll do a theology of ministry at some point that could be weird
1: i took an entire class called theology of ministry so i've got plenty of okay so i've written so a theology of ministry so uh yes Sweet. i like okay. it
0: well <laughs> maybe we'll do that at some point when we're less tired and we'll have to build up to that one, too. Uh, this episode today, as you've already seen in the title, is Did the Father Abandon Jesus on the Cross? We're asking a question uh, and tackling kind of a uh, an, an established idea, uh, but we're using the foundation of several of the last episodes that we have recorded uh, to answer this question. And the an- our answer may be different than the... I guess we'll say what is what is typical, at least typical, of the last couple generations or so. I actually don't know how long the the classical explanation has been around. Uh, long enough to be called the classical explanation, I suppose. But maybe not always the explanation. I don't know if Spencer knows the answer to that or not. I, uh, but here's... <laughs> Go I do not. I do
1: know it's been around for a while in some form um sure. I'm I don't know I, I I honestly don't think that the answer we're going to give has been around for all that long because it's kind of built on uh, some some other things that we've talked about ways which aren't of
0: like new to us either right? of
1: thinking about theology but Anyways, no, I'd, but it is, it has been long enough, like you said, to be considered classical. Uh, so,
0: yeah. And the big important part of that is since the answer we're giving is based on previous episodes, like the last, like the last four I think so. We'll cover those in a little bit. Um, But you should go back and listen to those episodes if you have not been keeping up with us. Those things are important, Uh, starting with Theories of Atonement and then working your way to this one. Yeah, four episodes prior to this one. Um, Starting with Theories of Atonement, which I believe is the first of those, and then working your way up to this one, you'll be all caught up to speed and have the same foundation, at least understanding, that we're going to work off of today. Uh, You can find all those on iTunes as well as anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And as always, uh, we welcome comments, questions, even criticisms uh, to our email at strongchurchministries at gmail.com, or you can get a hold of Spencer or myself on Facebook, and you can get a hold of Spencer on Twitter as well though you have a lot less characters to work with. And so at that point, it's probably just criticism. And that's fine with me. So uh, we're going to ask the question, did the father abandon It'll be abandon a good Jesus? exercise
1: and good writing. You've got <laughs> yeah. to be concise.
0: Yes, very succinct and to the point. Uh, did the father abandon Jesus? G- well, <laughs> speaking of succinct and to the point, uh, we don't promise to be brief or simple on this one like we did the last episode. So. I don't think hey, uh, we
1: actually were on the last episode,
0: but... <laughs> I don't think we were either. Uh, did the Father abandon Jesus on the cross? This question comes out of uh, the text of Matthew 27 and verse 46, a passage that you're probably familiar with, but we'll go ahead and read that uh, for purpose of uh, reminder here. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I almost assuredly did not read the Aramaic properly there, but that is okay. Uh, That's the passage that we're talking about. uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? The classical explanation that we referred to just a little while ago uh, was that Jesus bearing in his body all of the sins of everybody up to that point, the sins that follow from that point, etc. He's bearing the weight of all of those sins uh, that the Father abandons Him, because the Father can have nothing to do with sin, or God can have nothing to do with sin. Sin separates us from God. Jesus being covered in sin separates Him from the Father. That is the classical way of explaining that. Uh, That's not to say that that's the way that everybody explains it, but I think Spencer will agree with this that uh, both of us, I mean, that that's, that's what we've heard. The, the, that's the explanation I've been given almost that, always.
1: That's almost the only explanation that I've ever heard uh, given when this particular passage is talked about
0: within our circles anyway. So uh, so there may be other things that are out there. You may be coming to this going, no, I don't think so. Here's why. Uh, because you've heard different things from your circle. Uh, but we're going to try to provide an answer based on, again, the foundation of these last four previous episodes building up to this one. Uh, we, we think the answer will be good. We're going to look a little bit at some of the uh, Old Testament quotation that is how that this verse houses and lean on all of the theo- theological stuff that we have done in the previous episodes to get there. So, a nice little exercise in uh, theological thinking. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Spencer. Uh, what he's going to do is, I don't know, quote-unquote briefly, uh, recap the last four episodes that got us to this point that have been building up to This question. Uh, Spencer, give us those uh, reminders of the various theological things that we've covered up to this point.
1: Yeah, so I I like what you said a minute ago about uh, us thinking theologically about this question, which is the title of our podcast anyways, but I think what we're doing, and, and I've said this in a couple of other episodes, but I think this one, maybe more than anything that we've done, is a case in point of what it looks like and what it means and how we begin to think theologically, how we begin to connect different theological concepts, different areas of theology together uh, to figure out what's going on in a passage such as this. What, What does it mean for God to forsake Jesus and how do we begin to bring these different topics together to address and understand this question? And that's in essence, what it means to think theologically. Um, and so s- some of those theological points that I want to remind us of goes all the way back to four episodes ago when we talked about theories of atonement. We asked the question, what really happened on the cross? And I argued that the the best way to think about and to explain what Jesus actually did on the cross Kind of if you've listened to that one, I presented it as kind of the overarching theory that there are other theories, other explanations that we need to make, but I want to fit them all underneath this kind of larger umbrella theory, if you will. And for me, that's Christus Victor. That is Christ claimed victory over the powers of sin and death at the cross Jesus faced the full weight of sin, the full consequence of sin being death. And through the resurrection, Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin. He defeated it and became the victor. Uh, you can even think about that as the kingdom of sin versus the kingdom of God. When Jesus was raised, he he, God's kingdom, conquered the kingdom of sin, providing salvation to all the citizens of the kingdom of God. And so when you read, particularly the Gospels, Jesus likes kingdom language. It's all over the place. Uh, Kingdom is a theological theme in all four of the Gospels, some more explicitly than others. You know, Matthew, we think of kingdom of heaven occurs time after time after time after time. Uh, Kingdom occurs a lot in Mark, too. Um, Mark's just shorter, so you don't see it quite as much because of that reason. Honestly, I think if Mark was longer, you'd see it just as much as you do in Matthew. But Jesus likes that kingdom language and how to become and how to live as a part of the kingdom because salvation is found in the kingdom. And so that was the argument that we made about atonement. And I want to just put that back in our minds and we're going to come back to how the way that I would explain how God forsook or how God abandoned Jesus as fitting very well with that idea of Christus Victor. But then we moved on to talk about the necessity of Jesus being fully human and the necessity of Jesus being fully God. Uh, We talked about how Jesus needed to be fully human because the problem of sin is humanity's problem. God was trying to save the human being and not just part of the human being, but the entire human being. Uh, Our body, mind, and spirit that's the whole idea of the resurrection our full selves are going to be resurrected they're going to be changed they're going to be renewed and so because of that a human being was needed to save the entire human being i said a spirit could save a spirit so if all god wanted to do was save the spiritual part of us there didn't need to be an incarnation but the necessity of the incarnation is god wants to save all of us including our bodies And an important thing about that, and we didn't get into it too much, and I wish we had when we were talking about the necessity of Jesus being fully human, but we did mention it, and we've mentioned it in other episodes, but historically, it's been claimed that Jesus is still fully human, fully God, and that is that if Jesus' body, right, Jesus was resurrected and he had a body that you could touch, you could see. It was different than our bodies, right? Jesus walks through walls and does crazy stuff like that, but Thomas could still touch the marks in his hands and his feet. So it was a body. It was just different, a changed body, which is the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about the resurrection. And Scripture talks about our resurrection being just like Jesus' resurrection. So you have the uh, Jesus in a resurrected body, And that that resurrected Jesus in that resurrected body is what ascended to heaven. And that's what I mean by Jesus still being fully human, fully God. If that's not the case, if Jesus' body was, you know, like part of a rocket that just as it's going up is just shot off into the ocean or something like that uh, and doesn't ascend into heaven, there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, The idea of salvation and Jesus being human is that humanity was actually taken into God's self for God to save. And so the idea of Jesus ascending as fully human, fully God is humanity being taken into God to be saved by God. The idea of God suffering with us, relating to us understanding us is based on the principle of jesus being fully god fully human ascending and assimilating into the godhead once again i don't like that language but you've got something like that going on without destroying the trinity you've got something like that going on um but it's also been argued throughout history which i think is a crucial point that if you can separate the god part from the human part in jesus then you can also separate salvation, found only in God, from humanity. If you remember, the reason Jesus needed to be fully God was because salvation is only found in God. Only God saves. So if you can separate those two things, you can separate salvation from humanity, and the entire thing falls apart, which is why Jesus needed to be fully God and fully human in a way where Jesus nature as god and nature as human are brought together and they become one as not to be separated because if you can separate them then everything else begins to be separated everything else begins to fall apart so we Jesus had to be fully god Jesus also had to be fully human and that led us in the last episode to talk about the trinity because if jesus is fully god then that means that jesus is fully a part of the trinity and with jesus being a part of the trinity we talked about we have to talk about the trinity in a way where we talk about god's threeness and god's oneness without destroying either that yes god is three but god is also one And so trying as difficult and really as impossible as it is to balance those two things of God being three and God being one. And so those are the four episodes that we've talked building up to this, that idea of Christus victor, Jesus taking victory over the powers of sin and death, Jesus being fully human and fully God. The Jesus' essence is God and essence is a human being are united together uh, to become one as not to be separated because you have to have that, both the humanity and the God part in order for salvation to occur. And that leads to the necessity of talking about the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity as being three but yet one and trying to balance those two without destroying one or the other. and so I, I want to take those four things and now apply them to the passage that we started out reading. Uh, Jesus at the cross before he dies, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And thinking about the way we normally answer that, or the way at least as you said in our circles we typically hear it answered "Of god completely abandoned forsook turned his back on the son because the son was bearing the sins of the world and god or the father it can't have anything to do with sin i want us to think about that answer in light of the four things that i just reminded us of the past four episodes that we've talked about and what that would mean um for the Father to abandon the Son on the cross in this traditional sense of the Father turning his back or separating separating himself from the Son as the Son bore the sins of the world, that would mean either two things. It would mean either that those two parts of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, were at that moment separated. They were two distinct things, two distinct beings, no longer one, thus creating what? Two distinct gods. Now we've got polytheism. We've got two gods and not the one God that the Trinity holds up of one, but three. The idea of the oneness of God means that while there are three, you can't separate them out to the point for them to become completely distinctive. They can't be separated to the point where You have the father over here completely separated and having nothing to do with the son. They're no longer one in that moment. If that's what happened, the trinity falls apart. Our monotheism falls apart because now we have two gods. So obviously, I think we kind of want to reject that and say, well, that can't be what's going on. But the only other, other option with that kind of an explanation... Is that in that moment the Son ceased being fully God, which historically has been one way of describing what happened on the cross. Um historically people have had the problem have have had several problems with Jesus being fully God on the cross, in other words, with God being crucified. Uh, people's problems have been, well, he bore the sins of the world and God can't have anything to do with sin, right? That's why we want to say the father abandoned the son. People throughout history have had that problem with God being on the cross. People have also had a problem with God being on the cross saying that God could suffer because historically it's believed that God not only does not change, but therefore is not affected by anything. Um, the immutability and impassibility of God. God does not change. God is not impacted or affected by other things, which means that God cannot suffer is what that leads itself to. And so you can't have God suffering on the cross. And so people have said, well, uh, when Jesus gets on the cross, the God part leaves and you're just left with the human being, Jesus. But That leads to the same problems of what we've already talked about, of why Jesus needed to be fully God and fully human as not to separate the two. It takes God to save us. God had to be on the cross. Otherwise, salvation doesn't happen. If you can separate the two, you can separate salvation. All the other things begin to fall apart. So if you want to say, well, the son stopped being God and it was just jesus the human being and god abandoned and left him as he bore the sins of the world then salvation falls apart neither one of those explanations works theologically so that the kind of traditional explanation seems to kind of fall apart when you really start teasing it out and thinking about it theologically because those are the only two ways to explain how the father could completely abandon the son on the cross because of sin you either have two gods, which we want to reject, or Jesus isn't God, which we should want to reject, because if that's the case, then we're not actually saved. We might think that we are, but we're not. If that's And you could also probably argue that if you have two gods, we're probably not saved either. Not necessarily, but that just leads to a lot of other problems as well.
0: So, lots of problems with the the classical way. And uh, as you laid out there, those two, uh, here are the the logical paths you need to go down and the problems that exist uh, with them. Uh, One of those uh, in particular, and I think we've said this before though we haven't addressed it specifically, uh, but the uh, just being Jesus in the flesh... Uh, and the God part leaving is very gnostic and something that they that they had to deal with that John especially had to deal with there uh, for a while within our New Testament so that that problem has already been or that that idea has already been addressed a number of times by those uh, long long ago uh okay so don't be gnostic don't be gnostic unfortunately uh, so <laughs> most of us are gnostic. Uh, yes. But that's a different episode. that would be a good episode. That would be a good episode. We'll
1: do an episode on Gnosticism. Modern Gnosticism. I've got a whole thing about it. I've told my congregation (laughs) they were bored to sleep. Nobody knew what I was talking about, but I've got some notes somewhere.
0: Sweet. Well, we can do it. (laughs) We'll do that one. Okay, so we have our our reminders, the the episodes leading up to this and how all those things fit together. We're going to add on top of that uh, the original context of... Uh, what we read out of Matthew 27 and verse 46, and that is Psalm 22. So we're going to bring in uh, an Old Testament text and how the readership of Matthew, the the original audience, would have understood what was happening there uh, based on their understanding of, of Psalm 32 as well. Uh, I think students going to read through you know, Psalm 22. You said, 32. I said Numbers are... Um, we're tired. Did we say that? Uh, Psalm 22, 2-2. <laughs> two, two. Uh, I believe you're going to read through all of that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's, he's going to read through that, give us the original context, and we'll go from there.
1: It's kind of uh, lengthy. Um, so I'm, But I I do think it's important for us to see the entire context, because when most of us probably know, and, and maybe you don't, maybe this is the first time that you're hearing that, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting from the Old Testament, from Psalm 22. This isn't just on Jesus' lips, but he's quoting scripture. And the important thing about that is when anybody in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, they're generally, and I would say they're always wanting to encompass with that quotation the entire context of where that's taken. They're not just cherry picking a verse and saying, well, this verse would sound good here, or this verse uses the same words that I'm using, so I'm going to quote it. Uh, Sometimes we have the tendency today to do that in preaching and teaching, just finding a verse that uses The same language or is talking about the same subject and saying well i'm going to bring that and kind of make it say whatever i want it to say to make whatever kind of point i want to that's not what the authors of scripture do people throughout history have accused paul of doing that but it's fascinating when you look at the quotations that paul makes and you go back and read them in their original context how always the entire context is the exact thing that paul's talking about or the exact point that Paul is making or connects with the overarching theme that Paul is presenting in whatever letter it may be that we're reading. And the same thing is true with Jesus. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote of the first line of Psalm 22, which at least in my mind is even more of a hint that Jesus wants us to think about the entire Psalm. If Jesus wants us to think about the entire Psalm through that quote, to me, it makes the most sense of, well, just quote the first line to take them back to Psalm 22 and let them read and figure out the rest of the context, uh, sure. which is what Paul does, which is what Jesus is doing here. So I think not only do we need to think about the question theologically, like we just did and say, well, the idea of God abandoning, completely abandoning, completely turning his back on the sun, theologically doesn't make sense. But I would, argue, I would also argue that that interpretation also doesn't make sense in light of the context of Psalm 22, which Jesus is quoting here, which is why I want to, to read it. Um, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel and you are fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried out and were rescued in you they trusted and were not put to shame but i am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him. So you see, what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying, you know, God, in the past, you've delivered Israel. You've saved your people. You've been there. But the psalmist feels like God's currently not here. He's not present. The the psalmist is suffering in some way, some form. He talks about being scorned and despised and mocked by other people. And God doesn't seem present. And that's actually what other people mock him, right? Saying, well, he believes in God. Where is his God? And this should begin to ring bells in our minds of exactly what Jesus went through. Uh, This psalm sounds very similar. No wonder Jesus quotes Psalm 22. No wonder the early church was attracted to Psalm 22 as a psalm reminiscent of what happened to Jesus. Jesus was scorned by mankind, verse 6. He was despised by the people. He was mocked. The idea of he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. What that brings, at least to my mind, is the um, statement that was put above Jesus, King of the Jews. Right? He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the King of the Jews. He claims all these things. Uh, But look at him now is, in essence, kind of what's going on there, right? Uh, He claims this thing for himself, but yet here he is on a cross, which is kind of what this psalmist is feeling, very similar to Jesus. Uh, But he continues, verse 9, "'Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God.'" Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Ashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. We see New Testament phrases like that, mm-hmm. right? Jesus being poured out, um, his blood being poured out, blood and water pouring from Jesus' side. Again, no wonder Jesus quotes Psalm 22. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers surrounds, encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. There's a most obvious reference to Jesus, whose hands and feet were pierced as he was nailed to a cross. Now, at least my Bible actually has a footnote there that notes that uh, that's probably not what the original Hebrews said, but that's what the Septuagint, which was the Bible of Jesus' day, uh, the Bible Jesus would have read and been familiar with, the Bible Jesus was quoting, the Bible that everybody around Jesus would have known, the Bible of the early church. And so, again, uh, no wonder Jesus quotes this. No wonder the early church likes this. Uh, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, what do they do with Jesus' clothing? They cast lots for him. There's another reference to Jesus, uh, but which I think all of that goes to show that Jesus probably wants us to think about the entire psalm. Because there's sure. so much there that connects with what actually happened to Jesus. But I want us to notice how uh, the psalm begins to end. Verse 19: But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Delivered my, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Notice, verse 21 is where the psalm begins to change you have rescued me right? the psalmist has been crying out God do not forsake me do not be far from me all these bad things are happening to me help me and now God has you have rescued me verse 21 now notice the shift after God rescues him verse 22 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you you who fear the Lord praise him All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he does not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever." All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Notice how the psalmist says that the Lord has saved him, and then what does he do? He begins to praise him before all the congregation. He calls all of Israel to praise and worship God because of the way that God has delivered him, and it even ends with saying all nations and even generations that have yet been born will hear of how God has rescued and saved him, which again is reminiscent of the story of Jesus. Right, Jesus dies, but what happens? He's raised. God delivers him. God uh, saves him. Uh, God raises him from the dead. Uh, Jesus, as God, is able to conquer those powers of sin and death. And so, what happens as a result? People praise and worship. All nations are called to praise and worship because Jesus died but was raised. That story of how God. Resurrected Jesus is still being told today to generations that were yet born when Jesus first uttered the first line of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, in this psalm begins with My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the time by the time that it ends, we see that the psalmist uh that we we see that God never actually forsook the psalmist, that God was actually there the entire time. At the beginning, the psalmist can't understand where God is, why this is going on, why he's suffering. And so he says, you know, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? But eventually God saves him. God was there. God redeems him. God protects him. And so he worships God because of that. And that's why I think the context is important, because the context of Psalm 22 is not a context of God actually forsaking or abandoning or turning his back on anyone. It's actually a psalm about God's presence in the midst of suffering that ultimately ends with God's redemption, which is the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the story of God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of sin specifically bearing the sin of the world in a way that rears the ugliest side of sin in the death of Jesus on the cross, the death of God on the cross. But yet in the midst of God being present in that moment, we see redemption. We see redemption three days later in the resurrection, which causes all of us, or should cause us, to worship and praise God, and to tell that to other nations, and to tell that to generation after generation after generation. That's the story of Psalm 22. That's also the story of Jesus. God's presence in the midst of the worst situations, the most evil, the darkest time to bring about redemption. So the idea of God abandoning and not being present in that moment on the cross, not only doesn't fit theologically, but it doesn't fit in the context of Psalm 22. Which Jesus is quoting.
0: Okay, yeah, so very, uh, very interesting, especially when uh, the you, you see through the reading that there are just these constant things that throughout our New Testament gospel accounts uh, are these continued, well, allusions to Psalm twenty-two, uh, of of the piercing of. Uh, of the water, of the thirst, of the casting lots, all of these things that point us back to here is the the suffering Messiah text. Uh, And then you have the ending of all the nations, Christ having victory over evil, bringing all of the creation back to God, which is also everywhere uh, in both Old and New Testament as God's purpose. Uh, and the promise uh, to Abraham ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, or we might say uh, Christus Victor there, uh, as we started with at the beginning of this whole thing and the beginning of this episode and where I think we're about to end with it. So all of this stuff, Psalm 22, and all of the previous episodes that we've discussed, how then would we say... Uh, Matthew twenty six and or twenty seven and verse forty six. There go my numbers getting mess, messed up again. Uh, how does this all work together? What's what's our answer?
1: Yeah. So what what actually happened? What 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 actual what, what is Jesus referring to here? Yes. And what, what is the idea of him being abandoned on the cross? I I, I think. And I'm going a little bit off script here, so I hope I don't get carried away. Um, But I think part of it is merely that Jesus wants to recall the entire um, story of Psalm 22, Um, the, the movement of the entire Psalm by quoting the first line. So on one way, you could say Jesus isn't actually talking about being abandoned. He's trying to bring to remembrance of Jews who would have known Psalm 22, the movement of Psalm 22, of it appearing that God has forsaken or abandoned? Because when Jesus was on the cross, what would it have appeared to, to all of his followers? Sin, Satan has won. God has abandoned us. God is not here. God is not present in this moment. But by quoting Psalm 22, Jesus is saying, no, God's actually here. You may not be able to see it. You may not understand it. It may not look like it, but God is here and he's working in this moment. He's working in the darkness of this moment that's brought about by the powers of sin and death, the powers of Satan. God is still present. God is working in this moment to bring about redemption. And that is, there's so much application there to our own lives. When we're in similar situations as the psalmist in Psalm 22, where we think God has forsaken us, and God's like, no, I'm right there in the middle of this mess with you, and I'm going to help you through. I'm going to bring about redemption in one way or another, and ultimate redemption is going to be found in Christ, through Christ in heaven. And so part of me wants to say that that's the main thing that Jesus is trying to say. we, We spend all this time debating about, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be abandoned on the cross. And I think when we do that in part, we're missing the entire point of that statement, which is the movement that's found in Psalm 22 of God's redemptive purposes found in the midst of suffering and chaos and evil and darkness and disorder. That's the point. That's the primary point. And trying to debate about Jesus being abandoned is actually missing the point. But with that said, I do want to missed the point i guess
0: give an answer to the question give an (laughs) answer of
1: what it means for jesus to be abandoned by on the cross because i do think that part of the reason it does seem that jesus makes that chooses the first line is not only because it's the first line he could have chosen the second line right and made the same point or the third line or something like that Sure. yeah yeah um and so It does seem that there's something to be said about some kind of abandonment or forsaking going on there for that line to be used. And I would argue that the idea is that the father is abandoning the son uh, to the power or the consequences of sin. In other words, death, uh, the ultimate weapon, the ultimate power play the ultimate consequence of sin is death. And so the abandonment that's going on at the cross is the father abandoning the son to that consequence of sin being death. It's not the same, but it's kind of similar to the idea that Paul presents in Romans 1.24 of God, when it says that God gave them up. Uh, If if you remember that, uh, the idea of Talking about how humanity has exchanged worshiping God the Creator to worship that which has been created. And so God gave them up. God turned them over to their passions, to sin, and all those consequences of sin. He allowed that to happen, in other words. It's similar to what's going on at the cross. God is allowing sin to do its thing, not that Jesus was a sinner. But that Jesus is suffering at the hands of sin and Jesus is going to die which is the consequence of sin not of his sin but of other people's sin which is an interesting theological concept in and of itself Uh, but that's Mm -hmm. a discussion for another episode but God is allowing sin in that moment to kind of do its thing and bring to death the eternal son uh, to bring to death God the son it's similar also to uh, you know we we sing the song he could have called 10,000 angels to make the point that Jesus could have stopped it at any point right Well the same's true with the father it's not just the son God could have stopped it the father could have stopped it at any point. the father could have sent 10,000 angels to end the world to stop it all but God didn't. God allowed it to happen. And I think that's the idea of abandonment, is that God was allowing that to happen. And put yourself in the shoes of Jesus as a fully human being on the cross. Jesus knows that the Father's present. Jesus knows he's going to be resurrected. Jesus knows that what he's doing is to bring about ultimate redemption. But in that moment, he had to have felt like he was being abandoned as the Father allowed that to happen. Not that he sure. actually was, not that God, not, not that the Father was uh, truly, completely separating himself from him because that can't happen. But yet in that moment, no matter what Jesus knew, it had to have at least felt a little bit like that, which I think is another reason he quotes Psalm 22 is not only for us, but also for him. Psalm 22 is a reminder that it might feel like that right now, but there's something greater happening. God is working in a greater way than what it might feel like in that very moment. I think it might have actually been partly a reminder for Jesus himself. I mean, Just think about when Jesus was in the garden, and he asks, if there's any other way, let's do that. Jesus knew that there wasn't another way. He knew that was the plan. That's the human agony side of Jesus not wanting to go through it, even though he knew he had to. I think we see that at the cross uh, when Jesus quotes this. So I would argue what's going on here is that as the son bears the sins of the world on the cross, he is suffering at the hands of the power and the consequences of sin, being specifically death, being a direct result of sin. And so the father, quote, abandons or, quote, forsakes the son in that the father did not save the son or prevent the son from suffering from these consequences. He did not prevent or save the son from death because by facing the power and consequences of sin, by facing death and conquering that power. Conquering that consequence, conquering sin and death through the resurrection, the son thereby defeats sin. There's where the Christus Victor idea comes back into play. God allowed the son to suffer in that way because through the resurrection of the son, that power is therefore conquered for, as Paul says, all those who are in Christ Jesus get to celebrate in that conquering of sin and death.
0: Two things to say as we bring this episode to a close. Thing number one is, if you are a preacher, you're welcome, because uh, this is a great this is a great text for a sermon. Maybe so, my sermon next week. I've got a long that. week, so <laughs> this is a very, yeah. There you go. Yeah, maybe mine now too. Thanks, <laughs> thanks very much. Uh, thing number two, uh, and what Spencer began there with. Glad you went off off script for this, because I think that's. Uh, A very important point, not just to the subject matter we were talking about today, but the overall subject matter that we talk about every time, which is the thinking theologically part of this. Uh, And you said, don't miss the point. Uh, We can overanalyze to the point of completely missing. As somebody said today on Facebook that I saw, be a seeker, but don't seek yourself into oblivion. Uh, Sometimes you can find an answer and and that's the answer and stop there. Don't be obsessed with new or more or whatever. Sometimes you find an answer and there's the answer. And the Psalm 22 passage laying out uh, God where argue, which is a question that so many fully human people ask throughout the Old and New Testament, feeling like God is not there when he actually is working in a way that they would not understand. Uh, it would make sense that that same Thing is going on with Jesus there being fully human himself, uh, but through facing that, he conquers it and allows us to conquer those things alongside him. So, uh, very good episode. I'm glad you went off script. I would say go off script more, You know, but I don't know that I want to encourage that every time. I had the ep- but today epitome it was
1: good. <laughs> of an off script moment Sunday. We were having a little our devotional that we have at the very end of everything that we do on Sunday morning. And I was talking to some people in the back about class, about the Sabbath and got so excited about the Sabbath. I just changed my devotional 30 seconds before we started to talk about the Sabbath. Uh, So (laughs) sometimes it works. A lot of times it doesn't.
0: And I'm sure just like the Sabbath, everybody was quite excited to rest. Uh, afterwards, like we are being very tired. Good episode, I think, regardless. Uh, and uh, I, we want to hear from you as to whether you agree with that sentiment or not. Uh, send us questions, especially about this episode or any of the episodes leading up to it uh, about atonement, about Jesus being fully God and fully human, about Trinity. Uh, And about the question today, did the father abandon Jesus on the cross? We'd love to hear what you think about that. And we'd love to keep going down the rabbit hole, entertaining more questions so long as we don't miss the point uh, that Jesus is the victory. I'm Jack, and that's Spencer. We'll see you next time.